quite obvious to us when we ever hear about breaking news, uh, maybe a three-alarm fire or a holdup of a bank or, or some kind of disastrous occurrence. Maybe it's a, a fire or maybe it's a, it's a hurricane or whatever it might be. The people that are interviewed are certainly going to be officials that are at the scene, but also people who saw what had happened. You know, if a fire breaks out in Arizona, you and I are not going to be the people that they're going to be interviewing because we weren't there. Nor do we make it our business to question the witness of those who all come to the same conclusion that that's what happened at a particular time. We say, okay, well, I wasn't there, but they were, and well, I can take their word for it because they're all uh, testifying with the same conclusion. Well, Christianity often gets a bum rap you may know, for being so far out of the realm of reality, because after all, these people who talked about the things that happened back in the times of Christ were primitive people, and they wrote what they wrote in a primitive way, and these people back then taught things that were so far outside the scope of rationality that nobody can take them seriously. Only people who are looking for a crutch in life. Only simpletons. And on top of that, you've got people who live 2,000 years later, or even more, and, and they, uh, depending on what, when something was written, who are also willing to correct the people who lived at the time these things actually happened, and set them straight for their supposed errors in judgment in their evolutionary uh, advanced uh, humanity in which they find themselves. Well, Luke was a physician, and he went on missionary trips with Paul, and he declared in the early centuries after Christ to be the author. He was declared in the early centuries after Christ to be the author of both Luke and Acts. And he's one of those who gets the wrath. And yet he's the one who has, who has testified that his compiling of both his gospel and his book, that's entitled The Acts of the Apostles, is an orderly account of what happened in the days of Jesus and the times just before his coming and his times and the times after his ascension into heaven. He introduces his gospel as worthy of people's trust, a worthy of faith. Not because it's bizarre that only somebody with blind faith who just take leaps of faith to believe it but because it's an account that is orderly and worthy of trust. Now that doesn't mean that everybody's going to believe it's orderliness and truth, because only the Spirit of God is going to change people's darkened hearts that way, uh, hearts that don't like the truth. But that doesn't take away from the fact that his account, like the rest of Scripture for that matter, are worthy, not just about being penned, but worthy of trust. And so we take a look this morning as we lead our way up to the time when we tend to celebrate in a very focused way the, the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're going to look at Luke's orderly account that includes the birth of Christ and what leads up to it. His subject was a worthwhile one, and that motivated his desire to take up pen and paper, if you will. It was orderly because it was based on solid testimony. And it was written for the purpose of edifying people who had been initially instructed in the faith. 
So we look first of all at the fact that he penned an orderly account because it was worthwhile penning. We hear that it is a worthwhile subject at the very beginning of this gospel in Luke 1 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, I was going to do it too. Others had been writing about the things that had been accomplished. So he would do it too. And it wasn't like Luke was saying, well, you know, they did a lousy job of it, so I'm going to improve it. I'm going to get it right. No, it was that others had been writing, perhaps Matthew and Mark, for instance, and so he thought that he would do so also because the subject was worthwhile penning. Now, just because many people write about certain things doesn't mean that those things are worth writing about. Plenty of trivial papers and blogs are written about so-called celebrities that people pour over but that doesn't mean that those things are worth pouring over. If you're ignorant about many of those things, you might be very blessed for not knowing about them. The difference here was what was being written was written about what God had done, what God had, as you see in the verse, accomplished, what God had fulfilled, in other words, and fulfilled in people's lives like Luke and Theophilus. These things had been accomplished among us. It wasn't that these people had written on a trivial subject, but they wrote about what God had done according to his covenant promises, according to his covenant plan. As you read through the book of Luke and you read through the book of Acts, you will find, as you find a lot of times in the Gospel readings, uh, but you'll find it definitely in the book of Luke and the book of Acts, time and time again, remarks about what had transpired in these events that they were fulfillments of what God had promised to do. Prayers that were answered regarding God's promises. Scriptures that had all been pointing to what God was going to accomplish in Jesus Christ, to whom these scriptures were pointing and waiting and crying out for. The gospel starts with talk of fulfillment. That's how this starts. These things have been accomplished among us. But that's how the the script that Luke's book ends too. His gospel ends that way. It ends with talk of fulfillment. As Jesus talks to these people on the road to Emmaus, and he talks about the fulfillment of everything found in Jesus. The gospel starts with fulfillment, it ends with fulfillment. As Jesus opens up the scriptures to show to those who needed to be encouraged in faith, because they did, didn't they? Theophilus needed to be encouraged in the faith, the people on the road to Emmaus had to be encouraged in the faith that everything that had happened to Jesus was in fulfillment of the Scripture. Scripture that God had penned, Scripture where God had planned, Scripture where God had promised. They came to a climax here. These divine fulfillments were reasons why Luke is motivated to write down what has happened. 
from beginning to end. What God had done had always been worthy of penning. And now, even more so. Because now, he was finishing what he had started, so to speak. He had fulfilled what he had promised. He was bringing to a climax, to a pinnacle, what many were anticipating. And so if people wonder, and, I, and I've had this conversation not that long ago, because people were, I had this conversation with somebody and they were saying, well, what do I say to people who think that the scriptures, there's more scriptures to be read, written, or that we should be expecting divine revelations directly, some pipeline to God, uh, to add to the scriptures? Because after all, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came. Shouldn't we expect more things to be said? Well, if people wonder why no more scriptures are to be written. It's because what had happened in those days just before, during, and just after the times of Jesus Christ were times where God brought to blossom what had been budding from the time he had first promised to a fallen humanity that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. What more was there to be said? What more could he say that, that to you than he has said? What God had promised to accomplish, He did. He did. Through His Son. Salvation for both Jews and Gentiles through Christ's name. It's fulfilled. It's done. And these accomplishments are still a worthwhile subject, of course. Because no story is better for people to hear and to believe. There isn't anything trivial about the account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It continues to deserve our attention and, and we pray that others may come to understand that worthiness in increasing measure. To be able to say that what Christ came to do and what God, Christ, what God has accomplished, he's also accomplished in me. Let me be added to the us in Luke. He's fulfilled for me what I could never fulfill. He's kept this promise of salvation that I have come to know for myself as well. He's once again proven that his word is worthy of our allegiance, our spirit, our trust, our following. In a time when people want to trivialize God and maximize the trivial and exonerate what's shameful. And what's sinful, what God has accomplished, was worth writing down. Because he, he completed it. It was worth reading, it was worth believing, and it still is today. It's worth writing in an orderly way because it's not a chaotic tale. It's based on solid testimony. These accounts are events that the Gospel writer Luke says has been witnessed by many. Many, many people that are beyond dispute and not only witnessed, but spoken about by those who seek to be subservient to the word of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are the sources of Luke. That's what we hear here, right? He says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, and ministers of the word, having delivered them to us. 
So it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account. These accounts that he's writing are based on these sources. It's people who saw these things. They treasured them in their hearts. You hear about Mary saying that, right? All these things Mary treasured in her heart. She remembered them. She shared them, no doubt, with Luke. These people proclaimed the joyous news, like the shepherds did, and ministered that word to others so that Luke would say that the word of the Lord multiplied greatly and as people proclaimed that word. Luke starts by telling us that he gained his material from witnesses. That's how, the, that's how it starts, right? And if you look at the end of the Gospel of Luke, he relates to, to, to us that those who saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ would be his witnesses. The Gospel starts with witnesses, and it ends with witness. And that would be the witness that was promised in Isaiah 43 and 44. Now, we can't read all of those chapters, but if you want to go and read something that speaks about the witness of the Lord, those passages are a foretaste of what would happen in the times of Luke. These would be witnesses not of a fraud, but of God himself. They would be witnessing God. God incarnate, who was born in the city of David, the Savior who was Christ the Lord. They would be his witnesses. They would be the witnesses of God. They would be the true witnesses of Jehovah. You know, you hear about Jehovah's witnesses, you know, and they, they, they completely deny the divinity of Christ. Well, in order to be a true witness of Jehovah, you have to testify to the divinity of Christ. These apostles, these eyewitnesses, would be the ones who would speak to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And these people were not out of their minds. You know about how the second book of Luke starts. They were not people who were drunk with wine. They were not idiots. They were not people who were irrational. These were people who were witnesses of the truth. You know, even at the end of Acts, you know, one of the leaders there, Felix says, are you out of your mind, Paul? You must be out of your mind. He says, no, I'm not out of my mind. These are people who are witnesses of the truth of Jesus Christ and the events that immediately preceded him and the events that immediately followed his coming. And so whether you're talking about Zechariah or Elizabeth or Mary or Anna or Simeon, the apostles, the women who saw what he did or what happened at his death, the two on the road to Emmaus, in his ascension, his resurrection, his post-Pentecost events, doesn't matter. It all fits together. It's not in conflict. It's a stereotype to say that Christianity is irrational. It not only fits with what each other has seen, but it also fits with what has been promised in the Old Testament time. 
There's absolutely no problem with this witness. It is not false. It is not conjectural. They're not fanciful stories. Because those stories would contradict themselves if they were false. They would not agree, but they do agree. They all fit together. And that order and that truth and that witness is worthy of an orderly narrative then. And that's what Luke's going to do. That's what Luke's going to write. And Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to weave these accounts in a way that is worthy of its history, worthy of its testimony. We'll see more of that tonight. It's remarkable. And it all fits together in a beautifully harmonious whole. And whether you look at the Gospel on its own, or you look at it at the Gospel along with Acts, and we'll see us doing that tonight a little bit, you're going to see order. That's the order that you're going to find as those books are put together. It is worthy of such beautiful order and design because the testimony that was given and the apostolic witness that was proclaimed was worthy of that kind of a composition. And what is seen is is worthy of testimony by pen, but it's also worthy then of being spoken. Preached, it's professed, it is shared, and it is worthy of those words like nothing else. Christian gospel is not a fairy tale. It's not. It's not unimportant. It's not secondary to life. It's not take it or leave it. It's not cherry on top to your life that you're living. It's essential to life. It makes the difference between a, a life of chaos and a life of order, a life of turmoil and a life of peace. It's worthy of our time. It's worthy of our attention. It's, it's worthy of our faith. So much more so than the accounts of men that don't hold together or that don't come together in truth, unlike the lives that people live in the lie that contradicts what the Scriptures have to say. This Gospel declares that the source of our joy is not in the power of the acts of the words of men, but in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Savior who is the Lord of all. And you're not following in vain then, beloved, when you're following in, in, in faith this account of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You have a world around you who wants to say you're nuts. You're not. It's worth your attention. It's worth your worship. It's worth your entire life. And it alone is worthy to be your bedrock for time and eternity and for faith and for practice. It's not fable. It's fact. It's not trivial. It's truth. It's truth that alone can set us free from the the bonds of sin and Satan and death itself and those who would seek to steer or keep your life in a in a way that is nothing but chaos and turmoil. Why, do you, why would anybody want that? If you want order in your life, then you follow this orderly account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you want chaos, if you want your life to be a mess, then just ignore the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you'll have it. And this leads us to the truth that this gospel has an edifying purpose. Uh, We find that right in the very end of this passage that we read. 
Why did I make why, why do I make this orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught? So that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. We're not exactly sure who Theophilus was. His name literally means the lover of God. But Luke calls him most excellent, which the only time he ever uses that term otherwise in Luke's and Acts is always for an official. Most excellent Festus, most excellent uh, Herod, whatever it might be. But So maybe he was a, a prominent official. But one thing that we can deduct is that he was a man who came to faith. We hear that from the us in verse 1, and we hear that regarding the catechesis that he had received, the instruction that he had received, that he had been taught, yeah? that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Literally, that word is catechesis. That's where we get that terminology, catechism. It means to teach, means to instruct. He'd been instructed in the faith, and now he was receiving the word of this gospel, which would be used to build him up all the more in the faith. And so we see that he receives this word as a, as a word of edification. Not that it couldn't be used to bring people to faith, because that's what the proclamation of the word does as well, but it's also what God uses to encourage his people, to assure his people, to comfort his people, to admonish his people, to, to humble his people, to correct his people, solidify his people in the ways of the Lord. That, that's one reason why we have the services that we have, don't we? It's not out of tradition but it's out of a heartfelt desire to edify people in the word of the Lord. And in that way, the gospel isn't just like when you take a pill and then you want to make sure that you don't take too many of them because you know that's not good for you. Right? It's more like one who is being fed by the word. It's a great privilege to have the word fed to us in the amount that it is ministered to us. I remember many times people say, isn't it nice for you when you have a chance to sit down and you can have the word ministered to you? I said, you better believe it is. Because we all, in Christianity, as Christians, should look at it that way. The more we take advantage of that privilege, the better it will be for us if, if we believe that the word that's ministered to us is what's given to us for the strengthening of the faith that we first receive when we first believe. We not only need the word for faith, but we need to stay in the word to build our faith. And so Luke, Luke pens orderly because of a message that's worth penning. And it's based on a solid testimony, not on fables and fairy tales. And he does it for the purpose of edifying those who have come to a saving faith in the word of the Lord to begin with. And as we continue in the gospel in the upcoming weeks, as the words minister to us, tonight I'm going to take it of liberty of looking at another portion out of Luke that way. And as we do that, it's my prayer that we might take delight in that message that's most worthy, most worthy to be heard, to believe, to tell about. And I pray that it, that you might 
be encouraged in that word, in the process for Jesus' sake, because certainly that's part of the reason why the word is ministered from week to week here anyway. Amen. Let's take a moment to respond in prayer, shall we?